I next met with Dr. Tom Mickelson, and to follow up the cases from Dr. Redenberg, Dr. Mickelson presented several cases of his own, beginning with a 59-year-old man who had major problems with thrombocytopenia as a result of temozolomide. The first patient was a 59-year-old man. He was actually diagnosed at age 55. He was an engineer, actually a transplant from England, who was working over here. When he developed headaches and a fever, he was brought to the emergency room, and as part of the physical exam in the ER, they have a CT scan these days, but he had a right parietal mass, and this underwent an outside hospital, a stereobiopsy, and was found to be GBM. He was sent to our site in referral because of uh, potential need for a clinical trial, and he was enrolled on an upfront clinical trial with radiation and temozolomide, but with the addition of a novel agent, which is called hydroxychloroquine. This is one of the American Brain Tumor Consortium trials. Now, interestingly enough, he embarked on his radiation and daily temozolomide with daily hydroxychloroquine, but halfway through his radiation treatment, in fact, during the third week, he began to illustrate thrombocytopenia. His platelet count was actually 36,000 on a routine follow-up, and it plummeted very quickly after that to a low of 14,000. He was placed on prophylactic antibiotics because his white cell count had also decreased. His ANC was actually 70, and he actually had a platelet transfusion. He was put on growth factors for the white count and did finish his radiation but could not be restarted on his chemotherapy and, in fact, became quite refractory and required platelet transfusions for the first six months. So he completed his radiation treatment but could not continue with first-line temozolomide chemotherapy. Now, was it your interpretation that this was all about the temozolomide or also the experimental agent? Right. I think there's always a potential for synergistic toxicity, but frankly, HCQ does not drop the count, and that's not been previously described, but we had to say that was possible. What do we know about temozolomide radiation in terms of myelosuppression? Temozolomide is a very well-behaved agent. Incidence of myelosuppression is really very low, especially during the concurrent phase. However, there have been anecdotal cases typically, in my experience, middle-aged females, but anecdotal cases of these profound drops. So although we take temozolomide relatively lightly, I think the point to reinforce that it is really chemotherapy. That's really a striking history, though. Is there any thought that maybe there could be sort of an ITP or immune aspect to this? It just seems kind of strange. These are things that one tries to investigate for. Those are difficult diagnoses to nail, but this is not, again, an isolated case. This picture has been certainly seen. They tend not to respond to steroids the way that ITP does. And what about myelosuppression, and how often do you see just this profound thrombocytopenia? Right. Well, the thrombocytopenia in this man was only the first inkling. He did drop his white count after that, so he did become more pancytopenic. Surely less than 5%. Was he anemic? He was not anemic as well, no. So he actually supported his hemoglobin pretty well. And just to backtrack, just for completeness, you mentioned he presented with fever. Was that related to the GBM? No, fever is not a classic symptom of that. I think that was just a nonspecific symptom to suggest a workup for a general medical disorder. His headaches were relatively nonspecific as well, which is also pretty typical. So it was almost an incidental finding. So what happened to this man's tumor? He had these problems with myelosuppression. Right. So interestingly enough, even though he was relatively undertreated, he never did get the adjuvant temozolomide. And it's a question about whether these patients who have this myelosuppression have some particular sensitivity. It doesn't appear to be related to necessarily methylated MGMT status, although his tumor was methylated. Did well for a year. Some now some imaging change suggestive ongoing therapy. So since he's not failed temozolomide, and it's such a usually well-behaved agent, what we tried to do was to restart him at 50% dosing. But he wasn't able to tolerate that either. So he had myelosuppression even at 50% dose, so despite recovery. So now he has an area of contrast enhancement within the midline corpus callosum, infiltrating disease, not local. It's not amenable to surgery, and it's in the previous radiation field. So even additional radiation treatment is not something one would contemplate here. 
any neurologic symptoms or signs? No, at that interestingly point? enough, he's perfectly intact. He's got a little bit of short-term memory loss, as many of our patients have after a year. But apart from that, he's working full time. In fact, he's off to Germany next week to do some professional training. And at that point, what was going on in terms of steroids? Right. He's been off steroids all this time. I just want to focus on that point at a year when he was having progressive disease. Right. So because he wasn't clinically symptomatic, it was entirely an imaging change. So we didn't feel compelled to treat him with steroids. And what happened at that point? Right. So we've recently elected to initiate second-line therapy with bevacizumab. So this man then is just recently, or what's his situation? He's currently been started on bevacizumab as a second-line agent, despite the fact that he's got a platelet count in the 80s. Hmm. And bevacizumab alone without chemo? That's correct. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and kind of how you weigh it out in terms of whether to include, for example, arena-tecan? The arena-tecan combination with bevacizumab came from the experience in colon cancer. Bevacizumab as a single agent appears to have very significant activity based on the brain trial. It's not entirely clear whether arena-tecan, in fact, adds anything. As a single agent, arena-tecan is really not dramatic at all. And it is certainly related to the lion's share of the adverse events that are related to the bev arena combination. It seems like I'm asking this in so many different tumors now in terms of how BEV works, but specifically in GBM, do you have any feeling in terms of how much of it's directly against the cancer cells, how much against the stroma, and how much against edema? Right. Well, there's clearly an anti-edema effect on the blood-brain barrier. No question about that. It's the only way you could see such profound imaging changes. There have been some studies that have done MRI scans as soon as 24 hours after the first dose, and there are imaging changes. We're always very gratified to see the six-week scan where we see very significant shrinkage oftentimes looking like a patient has had a debulking operation but has only had bevacizumab. So clearly there is a blood-brain barrier effect. But those patients that have been on the BRAIN clinical trial have been on bevacizumab sometimes continuously for over three years, and there is no amount of steroid-equivalent effect that could result in that tremendous long-term outcome. VEGF, as you know, the receptors are expressed not just in endothelial cells but also on tumor cells. We've seen imaging objective responses, not just with the contrast enhancement, but often even non-contrast enhancing disease. And how long has he been on treatment? He's only been on treatment the last three months. He's just passed his first follow-up MRI scan, and he's got moderate improvement in his scan. And again, using him as an example, when you look at his scan, is it mainly edema that's changed or the tumor itself? Well, the tumor itself, it was a fairly discrete tumor without a lot of edema or mass effect. Clearly blanching of that tumor bed, there's still T1 hypointensity there but very significant vascular involution, I think would say, at this point. How did he do with the BEV in terms of hypertension, proteinuria, any other problems? No problem at all so far, and that's pretty typical. I mean, even fatigue, which is on the list as well, is mild, and he's fully functional. I think the bigger issue is that there is a threshold of platelets below which medical oncologists will be uncomfortable using bevacizumab, but we're not exactly sure what that threshold ought to be. His platelets are in the 80s, which is probably acceptable, but some of our oncologists, for example, are quite uncomfortable in using bevacizumab with platelet counts less than 50, only because of the risk of hemorrhage. That's more a theoretical risk. Frankly, that's kind of their general practice rather than any defined risk in this population. Yeah, you see like little isolated reports in different tumors about that. Obviously, that is a major issue or thought about GBM, and I guess it hasn't played out that well. In the original trials, that was the major concern to the point where patients were forbidden for being on anticoagulants during the trial. That was gradually, you know, lessened because of the experience. And frankly, I don't think the hemorrhage report is any higher than is the spontaneous incidence in these tumors. One thing it's seen, for example, I think a lot in colon cancer with bevacizumab chemo is nosebleeds, usually just sort of irritating. Sometimes they have to be cauterized. What about in GBM? Right. In GBM, that's atypical. But what is common, in fact, they'll have some slight nasal staining when they blow their nose and some little pink discharge, but seldom much more than that. 
And so this man basically just cruised along without anything. Right. Doing well so far, fully functional, no particular problems, no evidence of any bleeding. And the platelet count has remained stable. It's not increased, but it's not decreased either. He's very gratified that he has a very impressive early response. We all look like geniuses at the time of the first scan. But we're sort of balanced that with the fact that we need to maintain that over the longer term, that there are some imaging-related changes that aren't entirely anti-tumor effect. But we do do some teaching on that side to make sure patients understand the context of what we're seeing. What do you see in terms of duration of response, the spectrum that you see with Bev? Right. Well, in our personal experience, our response rate seems to be even higher than was reported by the BRAIN trial. I think we see clinical improvement in probably 80% of scans early on. These are sustained certainly for many months, but beyond six months, it tends to splay a little bit. But we have had excellent responses in patients for years, for three and four years. We have to the point where some people have debated what is the correct duration of treatment. And in some patients who have an excellent response, you know, no evidence of residual contrast-enhancing tumor and have been treated, say, for a year, we'll electively remove those patients. What about the patient who develops progressive disease on bevacizumab? Do you think that they are, and Jim Fredenberg made this point, questioning whether or not they're more resistant to new agents than, say, another patient with progressive disease who never had Bev? Oh, there's no question about that. The disease changes quite significantly. One of the other cases will illustrate that. To the point where, and frankly, there are no clinical trials open at this point for patients who have had bevacizumab failure. One of the agents that we talked about at the think tank last summer that you've been very involved with that I found fascinating, I'm always curious about new novel agents, is selingitide. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether, for example, a patient like this would be eligible for a trial that might look at that? Right. So selingitide, as you know, is an agent that blocks a completely different arm of the angiogenic pathway. It blocks two of the integrins that are known to be involved in vascular formation, the alpha-V beta-3 and alpha-V beta-5. These are basically survival signals for the endothelial cells and not the growth factors in the VEGF arm the way that bevacizumab blocks. So by interacting with the integrin, the survival signal is basically cleaved, and those endothelial cells are much more sensitive to apoptotic death and other mechanisms of cell death. Now, the one big advantage of that agent is there are really no adverse events. The integrin is not expressed in any normal adult organ. It's a method of angiogenesis that happened in fetal development, such as in the limb bud formation for limbs, and it is shut off basically in adults. The tumor has resurrected them as a signaling molecule in neoplastic angiogenesis, which speaks then to the very excellent safety profile of the drug. I've been using that drug probably six or seven or eight years and yet have not attributed any adverse event to that particular agent. Problem, though, is that it's an IV and the agent needs to be given on a fairly regular basis, and so the schedule is very inconvenient. It's twice per week. I have patients, though, I have one patient in particular who was on the original recurrence trial and he is now into his sixth year of wow. biweekly infusion. Would selingitide be something you'd be thinking about? Either is there a study that's looking at it, or would you consider it? Right. So it turns out there is just about to kick off a combination trial with bevacizumab and selingitide. This patient would have been a candidate at, well, actually probably would not have been only because of his persistent low platelet count. He wouldn't have met all the eligibility criteria for safety. But patients like that with new bevacizumab therapy will be tested with the combination. Any other situations where, I mean, it could be used sort of as a single agent, or has it been looked at? Well, selangitide, you know, has been looked at in combination with radiation and temozolomide, and that was the upfront trial that actually kicked off a worldwide phase three program that's ongoing right now. Now, the other interesting point, coming back to MGMT, the clinical trial that we were involved with in newly diagnosed patients did show a subset of patients who did really quite well, and they were those that had the methylated MGMT. So the prospective trial, phase three, randomized trial, 
is now ongoing with methylated patients only. There is a separate trial in unmethylated patients, those relatively more poor prognosis patients, with more dose-intensified selangitide, up to and including daily IV infusion for all of the 42 days of their radiation treatment. Logistically a nightmare, but in those patients, the question is, can they be rescued at all? But the optimal patients are those with MGMT methylation, and that trial is going on worldwide now, probably about 50% accrued. And I know there was a randomized phase two presented at ASCO last year. I don't know if that's the first or the main study that prompted the phase three, but it kind of didn't, honestly, to me, look all that impressive. I wish the effect size was more significant, absolutely. If I was putting my money on Merck stock, I'm not sure that would be enough to sway me. On the other hand, I guess, you know, in a disease where we haven't really seen too much progress, I guess really until bevacizumab, I'm not sure there's been that much to be excited about. I guess there's always the opportunity to move things forward a little bit. Right. Well, interestingly enough, at the ASCO presentation last year, there were three clinical trials that were presented each in a row. Telampanel was one, selangitide was the other, and then there was an immune modulatory poly-ICLC. And interestingly enough, they described the same median survival of 18 months, which is a pretty good number, but they were all the same. And that was kind of curious. You remember the discussion was, frankly, are any of these drugs active or are we simply treating patients better? So I think it's basically a mixed bag. We have some candidate drugs that appear to have some activity, but we're just doing a heck of a lot better in overall managing these patients with comprehensive care, with you know surgery, better radiation, and of course, involving them in clinical trials. I guess there's also the issue of, you know, maybe you put together two novel agents and, you know, one plus one isn't two, one plus one becomes 10 through some kind of synergy. Any reason to think selingitide and BEV would get along well other than obviously toxicity? Right. I see no reason why there should be any reason not to use them together. Whether, in fact, there's going to be treatment effect, we'll have to see. Those are the reasons for doing the trials. We're certainly looking for much more rational ways of looking at combination therapies. I think that we're working hard on animal models, for example, to look at the signaling pathways and the escape mechanisms. If you block kinase number one and kinase number two, what is kinase number three, the escape mechanism, and how do we look at combinations up front to block each of the escape pathways? But those are ongoing, and those will feed into the next generation of trials as we finish with the current generation of single-agent trials. Another thing that it sounds like this man didn't have, but I was really curious, particularly, again, based on the discussion of the think tank last year, is the Gliadel wafer sort of coming in from the outside and looking at it. It was a little confusing to me in terms of it doesn't seem like it's being used that much. Am I wrong about that? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, it's a 15-year-old product. And while there was phase three data, the data that actually got the agent approved was cobbled together from two different phase three trials, one underpowered and stopped for logistic reasons, and then the other... Uh, North American one, and it was always borderline in efficacy. And any data that we have at this point on gliadel and brain meds? There are some small single institution experiences that have been published, and it's certainly safe. And efficacy, yes, you know, as good as a phase two can tell you. So this is a large multi-institutional phase two, and I think if the signal is strong enough, they'll go forward with more definitive design. So you're putting patients on that study? We're not, only because I'm on the data safety monitoring board for that trial. I see. You know, that was another thing that I was curious about, again, thinking back to the think tank, is the issue, you know, you have like a lot of research attention now focusing on gliomas, and yet, as you say, there's a lot more patients out there with brain mets, you know, and breast cancer, you have a couple of people who seem like they're kind of focusing on it. What about sort of the GBM investigator community? Are they actively involved with brain mets? Well, all centers will be, of course, because it's a significant part of the clinical population that we deal with. Clinical trials, however, are fraught with difficulty, and it's not so much that the endpoints dealing with the brain are the issue, it's really what's happening below the neck. 
Right. You know, we did a dose escalation trial with temozolomide and whole brain radiation treatment, but frankly, the disease below the neck gets out of the control more often, and frankly, systemic failures and that sort of thing are much more likely to confound your ability to judge how you're doing in the brain. We actually can do pretty well in controlling brain disease, especially in non-small cell lung cancer. What happens below the neck is very significant. Are there situations outside of protocol setting where you'll use temozolomide for brain meds? Jim brought up the question of the patient with progressive disease without, you know, major systemic problems who's already had, for example, whole brain radiation. Oh, sure. I mean, you have to rescue those patients somehow, and temozolomide would be the agent one would normally turn to. There isn't an obvious next one. Have you seen any clinically useful responses in that situation? I think we've seen disease stabilization as probably best response. Again, without controlled data, it's hard to be more definitive than that. We all, you know, always work on our last anecdote. Any observations before we get back to GBM in terms of management of brain mets in the community setting? It can be a pretty desperate situation. Anything that you see being done out there that maybe you don't necessarily agree with? Right. Well, you know, one of the things, there is a fairly significant prognostic difference between what they call oligometastases and multiple whole brain mets. And one to three, and you can argue about four, whether four is really where the threshold ought to be. But there are places in the country that will use gamma knife radiosurgery, for example, for dozens of lesions. And I'm not sure that's supportable as far as the prognostic difference in a patient who has 10 mets versus one that has three. I think the general consensus in most larger centers is that up to three mets, yes, perfectly amenable to focal therapy, whether it's radiosurgery or surgery plus radiosurgery. But beyond that, I think it's not supportable. Let's talk about your 33-year-old woman. This is a young gal who presented at age 33, and she presented originally with a generalized seizure, which is not uncommon. She was operated for a right frontal mass for a glioblastoma that had some oligodendroglial features and went on to get her fractionated radiation with concurrent temozolomide. And at this time, in combination with temozolomide and irinotecan for first-line therapy on a clinical trial. This was an old RTOG trial, speaking to the fact that she actually was treated more than five years ago. She did well and eventually did not tolerate irinotecan in combination with temozolomide, which was the conclusion of that trial. That was not a supportable combination. But she went on to complete 18 cycles of adjuvant temozolomide and did very well. She was off treatment, in fact, after a subsequent further year, but then eventually showed some regrowth and she was reoperated. And this is three years after her original diagnosis. You know, I always love the waterfall plots. If you think about overall, you know, 100 or 1,000 patients with primary GBM getting radiation temozolomide, where does this woman fit in? She sounds like she had a remarkably better response than is normally seen. Oh, yes, absolutely. And she had, you know, all the good prognostic factors. She was young. She was fit. She had excellent surgery. I don't believe we actually had her MGMT status, but again, she had everything going for her. The other thing you'll notice is that she had some oligo component to her tumor. And there has been some discussion in the past about whether there is a variant of GBM, which they call the malignant glioneuronal neoplasm. But oligo, any oligo component to a GBM tumor is meant to be a more favorable prognostic factor. She was not an oligo in the sense that she had 1P or 19Q loss, though. She was clearly GBM. So what happened? So eventually she was reoperated. And at that point, she was again high-grade glioma, which is kind of the generic recurrent tumor after therapy. It's sometimes hard to identify the pristine features of glioblastoma in recurrence but high-grade malignant recurrent disease, and she eventually was treated with this fractionated stereotactic boost. This was before the era where we began to use bevacizumab at first recurrence, and she was on a phase one trial briefly, but progressed again fairly quickly beyond that, and subsequently went on bevacizumab. What happened then? Well, she was on bevacizumab for approximately 18 months, 
but gradually we began to see not contrast enhancement changes, but this diffuse flare signal abnormality. And in the last six months, that actually accelerated to involve three out of four hemispheres. Uh, very significant functional decline with initially hemiparesis and then cognitive change to the point where the last time I saw her, she actually was not ambulatory any longer, cognitively very severely disabled, and she passed away actually about three months ago. Now, did she receive any therapy after the BEV? Well, we actually did try BEV, Irina Tikan, and whatever combination we could come to with her subsequent progression. But this was one of those cases, in fact, once you fail bevacizumab, especially with this very extensive infiltrating pattern, that there really is not much to rescue. There was no localized tumor enough to give further focal radiation treatment, as has become our practice. We were just stuck with the next best or least worst next chemo combination. How did she do on the 18 months of BEV, again, in terms of side effects, hypertension? No, originally she did very well. No hypertension, no renal dysfunction, tolerated extremely well. And I guess the lesson behind this case is there's a difference in terms of progression on Yeah, so, I mean, the question really comes is, is, in fact, the infiltrating disease that's seen with prolonged bevacizumab therapy the promotion of infiltration, as some people have talked about, or is it fact that we keep ahead of localized nodular solid disease and the ongoing infiltration is really not any more accelerated but is the natural history of a glioblastoma that survived for five years. So what do we know about the answer to that question and what's your theory? Well, I don't think we have much. It's not a routine pattern of progression though, I must say. The diffuse infiltrating pattern is probably not seen in more than 20-25% of patients. But it is recognized and in my experience tends to be a late stage. We tend not to see this early. So I think there is reason to think that while bevacizumab does restrain local vascularization and solid nodular tumor progression, I think there's an underlying infiltrating process that, whether it's accelerated or not, I'm not entirely convinced. I think it may simply be the underlying natural history of that zone or that component of the tumor that's not dependent on VEGF-driven vasculature. Anything you want to say about palliative care of GBM? And for example, did this lady end up going into hospice? Oh, yes, she did. We had a long discussion about that, and I think the issues that all the medical oncologists will tell you is that it's important to have a frank discussion. In fact, we do it quickly at the time of diagnosis just to know that we're recognizing the critical nature of the illness that we're dealing with. And I tell them this is the disease that'll take their lives, but that will push that day off as much as possible. And that, in fact, the withdrawal of active anti-cancer care is a patient decision based on the balance of quality of life and what the adverse events of the therapies that we're offering are doing to them. So it's making sure the patients are in control, make sure that they do understand that it's an important issue to talk about openly and give them the control and the decision-making capacity. Any other sort of palliative issues that come up with these patients? And I'm particularly curious about corticosteroid issues. Did she have issues with that? And what do you see in general? Right. One of the important things people have talked about is when you do decide to stop bevacizumab about whether you actually see a lot of rebound edema. And frankly, that's not been my personal experience. I know it's been described, but I've not seen that as dramatic effect. We originally had begun to overlap. And once we stopped bevacizumab to institute steroids almost prophylactically, but I've no longer done that because I don't tend to see that rebound very dramatically. I think from a palliative care point of view, especially when you're dealing with young patients, it's really not even so much the patient care, but the family care. There's a lot of kids involved, and this whole palliative process about being able to talk what's happening to the parent and let the kids you know, understand a little bit about what's happening, I think to be a little bit proactive that way, although it's extremely difficult to introduce, is critically important. Let's talk about your third patient, the 59-year-old person. Right, so this is a different sort of clinical problem, but he's a 59-year-old guy who was diagnosed at age 54, when he presented with new onset headaches, and he was found to have a large right temporal cystic mass that was debulked and found to be your standard glioblastoma. He was treated with external beam radiation treatment and concurrent temozolomide. 
and adjuvant temozolomide, and he did quite well for a period of time, but progressed 18 months after his original diagnosis and again was a glioblastoma. He was enrolled on the RTOGO625 trial and randomized to bevacizumab and temozolomide. So this was a two-arm randomized trial, bevacizumab and irinotecan versus temozolomide and bevacizumab. Temozolomide was given in the prolonged 21-7 schedule. We'll hopefully hear about the first results of this at ASCO. But he did well for actually 19 cycles. And while he didn't have much problem with myelosuppression, he eventually did begin to have the problem of renal dysfunction. And this is something coming to be recognized in patients who have had prolonged therapy to the point where he didn't quite have nephrotic syndrome, but almost. He had grams and grams of protein. And while he didn't require dialysis, he had very significant increases in his creatinines to the point where we've actually had to hold treatment because of renal dysfunction for the last while. And he's only recently now progressed, but with tremendous renal dysfunction, which will not make him eligible for any of the other clinical trials beyond bevacizumab. Now you're talking about bevacizumab causing renal? I mean, I know it caused proteinuria, but actually renal failure? He has had a gradual increase in his creatinine, yes. So not just proteinuria. How high is his creatinine? It's been as high as three. Three. And I guess you're thinking this is from the Bev? It's the only agent he's been on after he's completed his irinotecan chemotherapy. So what do we know about Bev and renal dysfunction like this? I'm not sure I've heard about that. No, it's not high on the list. In fact, it's on the list, but it's certainly not in the top 10. Nephrotic syndrome is up there. Hypertension is up there. Renal failure, you know, has been possibly attributed. Again, this is this guy's clinical experience, and he has no other concomitant meds. He has no other predisposition to renal dysfunction. What did you think about in this patient? Well, it's hard. So we've tried to do some dose de-escalation to try to cut the bevacizumab dose down. He has had persistent borderline protein ongoing, so we have done that. But he's only recently now progressed again, despite now we've had dose reduction, and it's not holding him. So in fact, he is actually going to be undergoing that fractionated stereotactic radiation that we talked about. The question afterwards will be, can we come up with a medical regimen that he can tolerate? Because again, we don't think that this radiation boost therapy is going to be curative. And can we go back to bevacizumab in any dose or schedule, or do we have to look for an entirely different agent? So what's your thought about that? Well, we'll have to see what we can do. But single agents beyond, he's had a lot of temozolomide in his day. He's had irinotecan as well. Third-line agents, carboplatin is associated with renal dysfunction. So we're really in a very difficult bind with him. In patients who have a very significant problem with accounts, or a guy like this who might have end-organ problems with kidneys, we may end up turning to a drug like erlotinib. The occasional patient can have a good prolonged response. It's not myelosuppressive. It's pretty well tolerated except for skin rash and should not cause renal dysfunction. And I know there was some discussion about a predictor of response to erlotinib. I think some type of mutation. Well, it was basically the presence of P10 deletion and EGF receptor amplification. And that was actually a New England Journal article, but in subsequent trials has not been validated as a really robust predictor. But you've seen what you think are clinically useful, what stable disease? Yeah, but I have no good biomarker to suggest who that's going to be. That's the frustrating thing. We've had patients that have been on for two and three years, single agent erlotinib, but they're few and far between. And we have no good idea about who that might be. It tends to be our penultimate regimen because it's reasonably well tolerated. It's an oral agent and it has some potential. But again, we don't hold up high hopes typically. Any correlation has been seen with colon cancer in terms of rash and response? Yeah, they used to say that you wanted to do was to titrate the rash to mild but not profound. But frankly, I think that's more a tolerance issue. I don't think we've seen patients that have a rash do better than others, only because the number of responders is relatively low anyway. Anything else that you want to comment on that we haven't talked today? You know, if you imagine yourself giving a CME lecture, for example, to oncologists in practice, any topic we haven't addressed today that maybe we could? 
Well, I think the majority thing is that there is a ton of ongoing clinical trials and there are some lights at the end of the tunnel. I think there are some agents to watch. And one of those is going to be the agent from Exalexis, the XL184. This is an interesting drug that blocks multiple kinases. And part of the strategy of single kinase trials that we've seen is that we've all reported relatively poor single agent activity. So we're all keen to have combinations. One strategy to have combinations is to use an agent that actually does block multiple targets. And this is the first of those that has come in widespread use. It blocks VEGF receptor subtypes. It blocks hepatocyte growth factor scatter factor receptor called MET and another one called RET. So multiple redundant signaling pathways that can block downstream signals from a number of tyrosine kinases. So we're enthusiastic about that. It's got a very good safety profile so far, and we're seeing encouraging responses. There'll be a number of ASCO presentations describing the ongoing trials. There's one in recurrent disease. There's one in newly diagnosed disease for GBM and several other in systemic cancer as well. So it's an up-and-coming agent. That's fascinating. Any predictions of like sort of what the earliest might be that, for example, it might be clinically available if, in fact, it really works? Right. It turns out that there are more sort of schedule and dose issues than originally suspected. And so some of the trials are being reworked to even refine the dose. So the phase three definitive trials are even off in the future. So it'll be several years for sure. And we've heard that oncologists and myself listen to different investigators have heard the term RET and MET quite a bit. Is this also being looked at in other tumors? Oh, yes. I mean, the hepatocyte growth factor, you know, like VEGF, is one of the most ubiquitous signaling pathways that's abnormal in all of cancer. And this agent specifically is being looked at in a number of different primaries. It's really interesting that it has, you know, different mechanisms, because a lot of times when people talk about TKIs, it seems to me it comes across more negatively that they're, quote, dirty, but you're saying that maybe somehow you might hit the right combination of different pathways, I guess. Well, that's true. I mean, the problem with the dirty inhibitors is that, of course, they're rather more likely to have a nonspecific effect and adverse events. So it really depends on what that combination ought to be. But we have lots of questions about dose and schedule and what the targets ought to be. So it's kind of a mess. We don't have good readouts for biomarkers about what the optimal combination ought to be. The other thing is, is that we're going to come to find out that these are very dynamic tumors. We've already seen this in the preclinical models where even if you block one or two of your favorite kinases, downstream within weeks, there'll probably be other redundant pathways that are upregulated. So there's a dynamic sort of time course issue that's going to be important as well. Anything new in terms of the theory or biology of why these tumors don't metastasize? Yeah, so that's a complicated question. We do know that they're actually circulating tumor cells that you can detect by looking for tumor DNA in the blood circulation, and that's sort of intriguing. You know, there is the seed and soil hypothesis. I guess these tumor cells simply haven't found the right niche in which to grow. It's a remarkable feature of these that they're so destructive in the brain with such aggressive necrosis and even spilling into the vasculature, but yet these metastatic tumors don't set up camp in other organs. It's very intriguing, and I'm not sure I've heard a very satisfying explanation of why the soil is not amenable to seeding. Any questions that you receive from oncologists in practice that we haven't addressed today? You know, a lot of them have to do with practical issues about drug management, of course, and the one most common, frankly, is the one having to do with bevacizumab and anticoagulants. It's not uncommon, in fact, that patients are told that I'd love to give you bevacizumab, but I simply can't because you're on Coumadin. But I think the safety record of the published results of the brain trial have suggested that that's really of no concern. In fact, patients are fully amenable to bev therapy with even full-dose anticoagulation. That's really the most practical one I come across. Yeah, actually, I remember seeing that issue addressed in lung cancer with the same kind of conclusion, but there's enough data in GBM to feel comfortable about it, obviously. Oh, very much so. You know, Bev originally had a bad reputation based on lung cancer. There were patients with systemic lung cancer who were given Bev and had hemorrhage into unsuspected brain mets. And while that certainly was true, we've not seen that instance of hemorrhage being clinically significant. 
to the point where, in fact, there are now ongoing clinical trials being organized for VEV therapy for brain meds. So that problem has been put into context. And while there are some risks, I think the potential for efficacy is also great in the setting of metastatic disease. What do we know about that at this point? Yeah, you know, early evidence. Actually, we're not yet participating, but we're trying to get involved. So I actually don't know the specifics. Any situations where you would consider it reasonable to use BEV outside a protocol setting for brain mets? For brain mets, I'm not sure there's enough data. There certainly are risks. So frankly, I would probably say no. This is the same issue having to do with upfront BEV. You know, the approval of Bevacizumab is conditional. It's an accelerated approval, and it's conditional on the execution of these upfront randomized trials. And because there are even biological rationales of why BEV could enhance radiation therapy but could potentially also interfere, and also the safety issues, especially with wound healing, we do not use BEV outside of a protocol setting in newly diagnosed patients. It is in widespread use across the country, I think, though, off-label, but it's not something we've chosen to do. That's interesting, though. So you're saying that the FDA approval is, why would it be contingent on upfront therapy? It oh, still that, might that, have that, a role that's the whole, that's the whole accelerated approval mechanism. And this was the subject of a discussion by letter in JCO between the Europeans who really want to see, as we all do, phase three randomized survival data for full approval. And that's exactly what is going to happen. But in the meantime, I think we've seen in the setting of recurrent disease significant efficacy from BEV. It's not phase three, it's not placebo control, it's not randomized, but there's efficacy. And so what the U.S. FDA allows is for a company sponsor to come forward and say, listen, we have this efficacy data, we're using endpoints like response rate and progression-free survival, would you allow us to sell product in that setting, but we will go ahead and carry out a definitive trial, gold standard design. And those two trials are ongoing, and it's to fulfill the criteria of that accelerated approval mechanism. This is the same mechanism that temozolomide underwent in its day. So the original temozolomide accelerated approval, frankly, was for recurrent anaplastic astrocytoma, a fairly niche application. But then the definitive trial was the upfront randomized trial done in Europe and Canada, randomizing between radiation alone and radiation plus temozolomide. That granted then temozolomide full approval. Are there phase three trials being done in the recurrent setting? Not for bevacizumab, no. The definitive trials will be upfront, newly diagnosed patients. So that's interesting because, I mean, I could envision the possibility that it may not add anything to temozolomide radiation therapy, but yet be useful for recurrent disease. That's entirely possible. But again, gold standard proof for full approval is survival data. And again, survival as an endpoint in the setting of recurrent disease is a little bit problematic and it's because there's this kind of run-in bias about when patients come in. We've already talked about patients that were stable after first therapy for several years versus those that fail early. So it's a heterogeneous group. Newly diagnosed patients, on the other hand, is kind of the cleanest data set you'll have. But yeah, there are reasons why BEV could be good or why it couldn't be good in the setting of add-on therapy to newly diagnosed patients. I mean, obviously it's different, but that's kind of what we've seen in colon cancer in terms of the fact that advanced disease, there's a benefit, and yet there's the big adjuvant colon BEV study last year was quote, negative. Right, right. No, I think that's a danger. There's a big bet going on for sure. 